You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, I ask you to turn your Bibles into Genesis chapter 3. And yes, you heard it right. I said Genesis and not Ephesians. I know that we are already accustomed to go into the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians, but last Sunday was the last Sunday that Pastor Justin preached on the book of Ephesians. It was an encouraging time studying this letter together and learning more about the mystery of the gospel in our lives and also in his church. But today, we begin a shorter series, much shorter, only five Sundays. As Christmas approaches, we will look together at how the promised Christ Baby Jesus is revealed in the pages of scriptures. Pastor Justin and I, we will tag team with the purpose of helping us to better understand how the whole narrative of the Old Testament is in fact the Lord leaving breadcrumbs that when collected and put together, reveal the bread of life, our Savior. So today we begin at Genesis chapter 3 with the promise of a better Adam. So follow along as I read Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, many Christians recommend that first time Bible readers, they should start reading their Bibles in the uh, book of Matthew or the gospel of Mark. I myself prefer Matthew, but most recommend Mark because it's short It's easy to read, and it's the story of Jesus. Since all scripture is about Jesus, we say, begin by reading his story, right? But often what happens is that the character of Jesus is loosely connected to the character of the God of the entire Bible. General and perceived ideas of God are brought into the reading of the of the New Testament, leading to many misunderstandings on the person and the work of Christ. I'm not saying that this approach is wrong in and of itself, but even though this is very appropriate advice in some contexts, I still believe that Genesis should be the place to start because a general idea about the God of the Bible is most often than not a wrong idea about who the God of the Bible truly is. So what are some reasons to make starting in Genesis a beneficial plan for our Christmas series? First, because Genesis literally means origin. The God outside time and space enters time and space through creation and originates all things. Second, the narratives of the gospel are not isolated from the Old Testament. Rather, they are its continuation. So the spirit working in the Old Testament authors as they write them is the same spirit working in the New Testament authors. Some even debate whether we should stop calling them Old and New Testament 
Instead, start calling them first and second testaments to emphasize such reality. And thirdly, Genesis sets up the stage in which Christ accomplishes his ministry, which is what? To restore everything back to its origin. Jesus does not show up out of thin air. He is the culmination of his own creation. When he willingly enters it to be the man no other man could ever be. Emmanuel, God with us. He is the promised curse breaker, deliverer, king, prophet. He is God. So from the first book of the Old Testament to the last, the expectation of this Jesus is being built up for him to show up and reveal himself. And that's why we start today in Genesis, where the expectation for restoration first begins after the fight, uh, after a fight, sins entered the world, and then immediately God already provides a solution, and he makes a promise. So how it all begins? Well, the Holy Trinity, in perfect harmony, created men and women in their likeness and image. The whole scope of creation was perfect and prosperous. The character of God was displayed by the goodness of his creation and the fellowship that he had with humanity. There was no death. There was no fighting, no animosity, no enmity. The serpent, one of God's creations, very shrewd in his speech, is the first being to taint such harmony. So the fall starts not by humans falling to obey God, but by the serpent having ill thoughts of who God is and by starting to distort his character. Did God actually say? Could he be a liar? Well, the woman here is given a perfect opportunity to affirm God's loving command. But instead, she adds to it by saying that they're not supposed not even to touch the fruit when God only commanded them not to eat of them. So she exaggerates God's command, and the serpent uses just that to proceed with his plan. The serpent finalizes his schemes and lies about God's character, leading Adam and Eve to disobedience, to sin, to fall, death, and then we're going to see fighting animosity, and enmity to come. So the first curse in our text today is given in order. From the first that tainted God's character to the last. He begins with the serpent, then the woman, then the man. Our text focuses on the first curse only to the tempter, the shrewd serpent. Notice in verse 14, how this curse is being portrayed in terms of identity. And then in verse 15, in terms of relationship. The text says in verse 14, because you have done this, it begs the question, done what? Because you have done this. What is this, this in the text? Because you have distorted God's character. So God also is going to distort the serpent's character. Cursed are you, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. What the serpent attempted to do to God, changing his character from beneficent provider to cruel oppressor, 
is now done to the serpent. The knowledge and high cleverness of the serpent are met with lowly crawling and humiliation. The eating of the juicy fruit is replaced with the eating of the dust. So cleverness and astuteness that was probably in this text seen as something good are now to be perceived as dangerous and deceitful because it's been cursed. So the very way the serpent moves and eats are from now on representatives of this negative reality that the serpent brought to, their own, to his own character. You see, one quick conversation that the serpent and the woman had in which God's commands are exaggerated, God's words are questioned, God's protection is rejected, and God's knowledge envied is enough for the identity of the serpent to be permanently distorted. One quick conversation in which God's commands are exaggerated, words, his words are questioned, his protection is rejected, and his knowledge is envied is enough to distort the serpent's character forever. Try to change the character of God is like running to extinguish a mansion on fire with an eight-ounce cup of water in your hand. As you run foolishly into the flames, you will certainly be consumed by the blaze and power of the scorching heat coming from that fire. No one can change God's character, not even a little bit. But even attempting to do so causes permanent damage to the one that is trying. Even attempting a little bit to change who God is causes permanent damage to those who try. But not only that, not only causes permanent, uh, permanent damage to our identity, it ricochets into relationships. That's what we find in verse 15. Two offsprings, the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. The offspring of the serpent is the continuation of his schemes and increasing of his deception, while the offspring of the woman is the actual multiplication of her species through birth, her seed, her children. So we have Cain, we have Abel, and we have the entire humanity. That's the offspring of the woman. So the enmity in the text between the serpent and the woman, therefore, is this constant battle between humanity and the schemes of the tempter, the sin that we are constantly committing, trying to distort God's character with everything we do. Remember that Moses, the writer of Genesis, is writing to his fellow Israelites. And those Israelites, they were struggling with this concept of sin, constantly committing sin, struggling to obey the law of God, from complaining of having too much food to eat in the desert to impatient creation of golden calves and new gods as they're even seeing the power of God in the mountain right in front of them. The growth of the offspring of the woman is directly proportional to the growth of the offspring of the serpent. The more people, the more sin. The more humans, the more animosity, the more enmity. And that's what we see throughout the book of the Old Testament. The enmity is there. We see that something wrong is not right, right? 
Like the apostle describes, apostle Paul describes in Romans 7, 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do do the very thing I hate. Or even more immediately in the book of Genesis itself, chapter 4, verse 7, the end of verse 7 says, Lord, the Lord is talking to Cain and he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You are not created for sin. It's contrary to you. You must rule over it. Do you think Cain is able to rule over it? He certainly doesn't. And neither does the Israelites, nor does Paul. And so do we all fail to rule over our sinful desires. We constantly succumb on this fight and we lose it. While we attempt to bruise the head of, the, of sin, of the serpent, by perfect obedience to the law, our inevitable failure brings the venomous bite of judgment, of the serpent, of condemnation, of guilt. Like Eve, we take God's commands and add to them to justify our self-righteousness. While we are trying to damage the conscience of our brothers and sisters by exaggerating what God actually said. In his law. We know our Bible very well and we preach, for the wages of sin is death to our brothers and sisters. But in the midst of God's caring discipline, we may not only question him for our trials, but we also reject his protection that he gives us through his church. We recognize God is all knowing, all powerful, all loving, all righteous, and we desire to be like God by falling into idolatry of our own self thinking that we are better than we actually are. We say we rejoice with those who rejoice and that we weep with those who weep. But our own joys and sorrows are the sole focus of our lives and conversations. All we talk about is ourselves. The character of God is forgotten and the elevation of self takes places. And what comes with that? Animosity, hatred, anger, selfishness. Envy and pride. Who is not guilty? Who can escape such a curse? We all are guilty. No one can escape. So Adam failed. Abel, Abel tried. But out of envy, he was brutally murdered. So if not Adam, the seed of the first, uh, first man, and if not Abel, the seed of the woman, certainly not Cain, and not Seth, the new offspring, then who? Who will be the one who is not only going to try but it, and keep trying to bruise the head of the serpent, but is actually going to cut it off? Who will see how there is a clear, we see here that there is a clear expectation for this who? Who is this he of verse 15? He shall bruise your head. Who is this man? From, this, from the seed of Seth, the one who would come. So God chooses to accept and to reject based on his own sovereignty. We see that on the life of Seth, but not in the appearance of his human success. He will indeed keep his promise and send one. We know the end of this story. We all have the spoiler alert. We all know how this is going to end. But notice how the text is building up these expectations for this one. Through the seed and the lineage that he chooses the one that is going to be the perfect and the better Adam. So 
I don't know if you know, but I play video games. Uh, this can be a little embarrassing, but I'm saying anyways. In the world of video games, opening the treasure box at the end of a dungeon can be one of the most thrilling and exciting experiences of your life or one of the most frustrating ones. So the algorithm of games that usually randomize the prize to be found and make it really, really, really unlikely for you to get the good prize and very likely for you to get a bad prize, which forces you to keep trying until you get what you want. And there are some games that after trying so many times the same dungeon, the dungeon itself is not a challenge at all. You get used to it and you just run through the dungeon just to see if you can see the, the prize at the end. And then when you actually find it, what you're looking for, it's not exciting. Even though the item did not lose its value, just the perceived value was gone for you. We have the privilege of knowing that Christ is the good and most valuable prize of all. We know that. We have the spoiler. His worth is held unchangeable despite of the amount of times we talk about him or access the treasure chest of his word in the Bible. We Christians, we hold fast to a redemption that was accomplished in the past at Calvary. And in a sense, when we open the pages of Genesis, we observe how others were trying and trying and trying to open the right prize and growing frustrated in the process. Their hope was based on a future promise, while ours is in a fulfilled one. So our reading of these stories should be done with a great level of, of charity, considering how the certainty of victory was there for them, but it was just not very clear, for the prize was still unknown. They're still hoping for a promise that was to come. Adam had the prize and he let it go. He was created perfect in perfect harmony with the glory of God. That was the ultimate prize already, but he let it go. Now other men are trying to go through the dungeon, endeavoring to recover it, to find it, to finally receive the promise from God, that he who would crush the head. For example, consider Noah. Noah, he was a figure to be looked up to as the possible final bruiser of the serpent. After listing the names of all men who failed from Adam to Noah, the text in Genesis 5.29 says this, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Who is this one? Comes chapter 6. Men multiply more and more, and it says in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So as man multiplied, so their wickedness. And then the text uses the singular word man to describe the plural humanity. And that there was only one man that was righteous, blameless, and that walked with God. Who is it? Noah. Noah it is. The hope of victory was so great that after God wipes out 99% of humanity, leaving only Noah and his family, the odds of Noah being the one is even greater. It's only his family. It's got to be him. It's not hard to look for it. Then comes chapter 9, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard, 
he drank of the wine and he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Noah fails. His lack of sober-mindedness exposes his nakedness, his sin, leading the youngest son to also sin. So the battle between the seed of the woman and the serpent is so strong that even after God blesses the fruit of the ground of the work of our hands, we still exaggerate in our indulgences and overindulgences, replacing what is good for what is bad. The price was again a disappointment. Noah died, and to make things more difficult, God had promised not to wipe out the population anymore. So finding the serpent crusher will be like looking for a needle in a haystack. It will require divine intervention. So if not Noah, Abraham it is, right? It's got to be Abraham. In a world of multiple languages and different kingdoms of God and different kingdoms, God speaks and chooses a man. Narrowing once again from where would the crusher uh, breaker come? Where would the curse breaker come? God promises to make him into a great nation. His name would be great. He would be a blessing. All the signs of a, the great serpent crusher was there. Multiplication, blessings and not curses, separation from the offspring of evil. A blessed nation. And Abraham believes in God's promises. And his faith in the midst of his childlessness is considered to him as righteousness. But chapter 16, verse 3 says, So after Abraham lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. If only he had waited a little longer, maybe he would be the one. But like Adam, he listens to his wife's sinful desires and lack of trust in God and succumbs into sin himself. God again has to intervene, blessing Hagar's son out of his own great grace and mercy and while keeping his promises to Abraham to persevere and to continue his lineage. You see the pattern here. The failure of our sin is met by gracious intervention from God's love over and over again. When the perfection of God's design for men and women, they're not met, God himself has to intervene. And when he does, there's redemption. However, Abraham was not it. Another disappointment, another chest with a bad prize. Abraham dies. Well, contrary to what the serpent tried to convince Eve of, God does not lie. We already said that in the worship today. God does not lie. He keeps his promises. His promise was kept. Abraham failed, but God in his great mercy gave him Isaac, the son of a miracle, born from old parents, for crying out loud, the pure seed of Abraham. I hate to break the news to you too soon, but Isaac's also not it. God indeed renews his covenant with Isaac, but completely based on his father's faithfulness and not his. 
Isaac seems to be this transitional, transitional character, a little timid and scared, and even following his father and his mistakes, having to disguise Rebecca as his sister, thinking that he would die if they found out that, he was his, that she was his wife. But Isaac actually has a blessed life. He lives 180 years, but he leaves behind two divided sons, twin sons, without being able to reconcile even his own household. This teaches us that feeble lives, they do not represent the exciting gift of divine preservation. Feeble lives, they do not represent this exciting gift that God has given us as he preserved the lineage of Abraham. Those that belong to God do not only survive through the promises, but they thrive in them. Otherwise, division comes and reigns, conflict starts, and the fight continues. From Isaac comes Jacob, the promised one, the one that he actually tricked his brother to get the blessing, bought his blessing, and God in his sovereignty still chose to turn that into good. In Adam, Adam, humanity falls. In Noah, it is preserved. In Abraham, a people is chosen. In Isaac, the lineage is blessed. And in Jacob, we see that the people have a name and an identity. Jacob was a man of honor. Look how he was a man of honor. He was scared and tricked his brother. He lied to his father. He worked 14 years to have two wives. He was unaware of God's promises to his fathers that God had to tell him in a dream. Fled from his father-in-law and fought and wrestled with God. And what did God do? He blessed and made him prosperous. What a man of honor. What an example of rewarding faithfulness and good works, right? Wrong. Completely wrong. These men so far are full of enmity with their own sinful patterns that God is constantly reminding them that I will give you a land. I will make you a people for myself. I will multiply your seed. I will give you a name. I will make you into a nation. The pattern of self-reliance is everywhere in the pages of the Old Testament. Men constantly believing that bruising the head of the serpent is a task to be performed in their own strength and that God is there just to give them a hand in the process. How do you and I go about thinking the same? Like Jacob, we say, if God will give me bread to eat and clothes to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. God has given me plenty of children and wealth. Look how successful I am. God is my God. My efforts to make our nation's laws good and right will make us truly prosper. And that's when God will be the God of our nation. How long will we see that the appearance of victory over the serpent is in fact God himself turning our evil into good by his great mercy? We think that we're doing all these good things, but it's his own mercy acting in our behalf. We call him God after we see all the bruising of the head that we did. But in fact, he's showing grace even before our heels are struck. God intervenes. Jacob recognizes that he's not the one. He puts away foreign gods. He purifies his family. He changes their garments and builds up an altar to the Lord. 
And God changes his name. Israel, the people of God is established. There's hope. There's hope for the one that is coming. The final bruiser of the head would come through the people of Israel. The sinless one, the promised one of God is coming. And what is his name? What is his name? And we keep reading and reading. Joseph. Who doesn't like the story of Joseph? Come on. Joseph is one of the best stories in the book of Genesis. How many sermons have we heard that inspired us to be like Joseph? Despite his naive beginnings of possible bragging to his brothers, and the Lord actually humbles him, and he becomes this example of steadfastness and endurance in difficult times. How Joseph's generosity was the means that God used to spare Egypt, Israel, and other kingdoms. Once again, through Joseph, God preserves his promise. He keeps his promise. How one godly politician was able to influence kings and patriarchs. Joseph is the man. Matter of fact, I challenge you to go home after the service and read the entire story of Joseph and come back and show it to me, a narrative, a part in the story in which he sins. You won't find it. Narratively speaking, in the pages of Scripture, in the narrative, he doesn't sin. The author of Genesis clearly highlights Joseph's faithfulness by excluding from the narratives his shortcomings. Joseph loved his family. Joseph forgave his brothers. Joseph served his master. Joseph rejected sexual sin. Joseph endured false accusations. Joseph was truthful to his word. Joseph honored his, the authorities. Joseph truly loved God. It's not only accidental that Genesis ends with the story of this man who apparently is the Adam who never sinned. But Joseph is not the one to break the curse, but the one used by God to preserve the chosen people of Israel from starving to death so that the curse breaker would come. We know that Joseph sinned. We don't know it because of the narratives, but we know it because of the ending of his life. Joseph died. Adam's sin brought death to the world, and those who die are sinners. For they were not able to bruise the serpent enough to continue living for the glory of God. But wasn't he going to end the curse, Joseph? What's up with all these years of slavery coming up in the book of Exodus? Who will come to bring complete and final redemption? And all, not only this temporary one that you have to keep going back and back and looking for this Savior. So next week, you can come back and we're going to continue this expectation in the book of Exodus with, with the book of Deuteronomy with Pastor Justin. But for now, I would like to invite you to open to the book of Romans. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 5 starting in verse 12. Starting verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death is spread to all men because all sinned. 
including Joseph. And then you skip ahead and it says, yet death reigned in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Notice how Paul connects the intervention of God with the grace of Jesus, highlighting that Jesus is God. And then skip ahead a little bit and it says, and the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reigning in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Through the curse of the serpent, Adam began the journey of death for humanity. Fighting and fighting and fighting. The better Adam, Jesus, is the promised one who began the journey of life for humanity. One began the journey of death. Jesus came, comes and begins the journey of life. In this one man, all other men can have access to life. And that is good news. He succeeded where we all failed. He never sinned, not only narratively like Joseph, but in reality, he never sinned. You can find that throughout the pages of the New Testament, that he was sinless. So Christ Jesus is the sinless, seedless, he that bruises the serpent once and for all. The he of verse 15 of Genesis 3 is Jesus because he's seedless. Therefore, he is sinless. Christ was not affected by the curse for his seed was clean, pure, spiritually born of a virgin. Even though he was tempted in all aspects of sin, he never failed. He succeeded. Christ was the only one resisting the tempter and defending God's character. He was the one with the Father, and the perfect harmony of creation was manifested through him. But wait a minute. Didn't he die just like Joseph? 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 25 says this. For as by a man came death, by a man has also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is who? Death itself. He indeed died, but he did not stay dead. The head of the serpent was not only bruised by his sinless life, but he was crushed and removed by his resurrection. He not only bruised by dying, but he removed it completely when he rose again from the grave. God intervened once and for all. In Jesus, we find this ultimate intervention of the triune God because he lives. He is not dead. He is alive. Right? We sing that. 
we have to believe it and we have to proclaim it. And if you're here today, you may still be like those men in the Old Testament, thinking that God's intervention will be the only solution for your failed attempts to fix your own life and to bring right to your life. Well, you're right. Only God can fix it. But that intervention already happened. You're waiting for something that already happened. The one man, Jesus Christ, willingly came to earth and graciously intervened on your behalf. The birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the historical intervention that you were waiting for. So there's no more reason for waiting, but there's plenty of reason for believing. And I call you to look to Christ today and see that he is the only one that can save you from your sins because he never sinned. He's the only one that can save you from judgment of death because he is the judge of death. Come to Jesus and be saved today. There's no more waiting. Believe today. His salvation is not temporal, but eternal. It's once and for all because he won't die a second time. He stays alive forever. The prize is yours now if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus alone for your salvation. What then do we make of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph? Well, Hebrews, the pastor Justin taught us this morning, course seminar beautifully, says this in, verse, uh, in chapter 11, 39 and following. All these, all these names that I just said, though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the race with endurance, that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured to the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They went through the dungeon in the hope of finding a valuable prize. We that are in Christ, we have it. Aren't you glad that your journey is not a video game in which you have to keep trying and trying and trying and trying to find the right prize? Aren't you glad that Jesus says in Matthew 13, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and they did not see, and hear what you hear, and they did not hear. Church, you are blessed. You are blessed for your eyes see and your ears hear and your bodies are the temple of the most valuable prize of all times in the history of humanity. Jesus Christ, the better Adam. Let us then as a church lay aside every sin that we hold so dear and every effort into fighting the serpent on our own strength and go through the path looking to Christ, confident that the founder and perfecter of creation itself and our salvation is always will be with us, the breaker of the curse of sin. Christ has cut off the head of the serpent once and for all. Therefore, 
We no longer have to bruise it. The serpent is headless. It has no more power to bruise us. Even though we still suffer the consequence of our own sin through our life, we have to believe that Jesus Christ already cut it off. He has paid the penalty that we had to pay. And to him be glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful. We're grateful because you indeed keep your promises. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ, the best Christmas gift of all. The gift that makes us not want to long for anything else. Father, we pray for all of those that are here, including myself, that we may long for Christ this Christmas. Father, that this season may not be of anything else, any individual wants, but that we may look to Christ, the perfecter and founder of our faith. Father, as we look through the pages of the Old Testament, help us to see how you always intervene. How men of faith that came before us, they tried and tried, and even in their faithfulness, they still failed. But you always intervene with grace and mercy. So we are grateful for the love that you have shown towards us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die and pay the penalty of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.